Hello, and welcome to the Game On Podcast. My name is Adam Bello. I am the CEO and co-founder of Breakout EDU, but I'm also a father, a serial ed tech entrepreneur, and an advocate for positive change in the classroom. Each episode of the Game On Podcast is going to feature a new voice from someone who's making an amazing impact and helping to pave the way for the future of education. We're going to get to explore their ideas and opinions, as well as learn from those successes and failures from these amazing educational gurus. All right, let's get started. All right, well, welcome to the Game On Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Bella, and I'm so excited to be joined with just an amazing, amazing human who happens to be an amazing friend, who is also an incredible, incredible advocate for what's great in education, Alana Leone, who runs her own marketing and education consulting group, LCG. There's so many things that Alana has done. We've known each other for, I think, over a decade, Alana. I think like 12 years or something like that, which is incredible. Um, so without further ado, welcome and thank you so much for for joining us today. I'm so happy to be here, Adam. Um, I have to say I'm slightly nervous because I'm always the host on my podcast. So I'm like, I... I'm one of those people that doesn't like to be the star of the show, and I just love learning and having conversations with people. So the tide, the tables have turned on this one. So I'm happy to be here with a little little hesitation of, oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I will say I, I had the, the pleasure and honor to be on your podcast early on. And then, you know, I, I will say it was such a smooth experience. I was like, oh, let's see if I could do that. And I will tell you from from the doing side of things it's definitely a lot of work. <laughs> so host or guest, I feel like there's definitely, uh, you know, pros and cons, but I, I really am just excited to have you on here. I feel like, you know, it goes without saying, I know I've told this to you over the years, but I feel like for our audience to know, um, you're one of the most genuine people that I know in the space. And I feel like the work that you do could be easily, you know, you're doing marketing and you're doing, you're doing messaging around big brands. And we'll talk about, you know, some of the things that you've done and some of the things you're working on now, but you know, to still to, to know that the person behind it is just truly genuine and doing things for the right reasons and with the right intentions. I just nothing but respect and just admiration. And, and again, just friendship. We've we've known each other a long time. We've had lots of fun adventures and different uh, variety of, of places. And, and just it's been awesome. And I figured, while yes, you might not want to talk too much about yourself. I feel like the audience here listening would would probably learn a tremendous amount from you because you are one of those people that has just lots of great wisdom and insight on stuff. So getting well, that out you, of the Adam. way. <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much. It makes my heart happy because so many of us kind of grew up together in K-12 education in our careers. And recently being able to go to ISTE and seeing people for, you know, after a break in COVID, just we, I didn't realize how much you all feel me just as much and how we have all grown up together and really try to navigate this crazy world of K-12 education together in a way that makes us feel fulfilled as humans and make sure that we both all look back at our time here and say, wow, I, I did what I could to make a difference. And I know that yeah. drives us all. Absolutely. So um, a, li a little bit about me, I'm Ilana Leone. I run in a marketing agency called Leone Consulting Group, short for LCG. We've been around for five years. And I'm kind of one of those people that feels like marketing is slightly a bad word. Like, I feel like some people stereotype marketing is almost like spray and pray and like, we need to acquire new customers and promote and all of these things. And, you know, privacy issues and get them in some email life cycle and all of these things. So although that can be done and should always be done authentically, especially in K through 12 education, 
our team focuses on specific aspects of marketing. So I spent eight years at the George Lucas Educational Foundation, known to the world as Edutopia. That's where I had the pleasure of meeting Adam and so many inspiring educators. And from there, I just really discovered my passion to connect authentically with educators and do that through organic social media marketing. And that's what we do at LCG and building educator communities. And the magic that holds all of that together is also uplifting educator voices. And we do that through creating content um, of any educator that has a passion for something. We work with brands to create content in the form of eBooks, blog posts, podcasts, you name it. So those are the things we love doing. We feel like by doing these things right, you can be useful in a consistent way to educators and start creating relationships that matter. Yeah, and that and that really is at the key and the heart of it. And again, like you know, you mentioned Edutopia. That's a brand that to this day, and I know you were like the, <laughs> the instrumental force behind creating what what I like to think of as one of the best looking and best sounding and most genuine brands out there. And for those people listening today, it's is just as relevant right now. And I feel like that's literally based off of the bones that you built. Um, so taking that and then being able to work with other brands has been, you know, watching your work blossom over the last five years as you've been doing it on your own. I feel like it's, it's incredible to kind of see that, uh, organic, genuine voice building and community building, and then take that into other places. Yeah. Thank you for that. I will say that Edutopia has a remarkable team and still a lot of the same people I used to work with are still there. It's led by Cindy Johansson, a very inspiring She's leader. Amazing. <laughs> yes, she is. And then she also now has Steve Merrill, who's the executive website producer, who has a beautiful eye for editorial. Uh, Amy's over on video and been producing for a very long time. She's that video Amy on Twitter, such a good, good human. Yeah, so there's like amazing. really you know, Sammer's still leading the community. So I I love being able to work with people that are passionate about improving the space as much as they are. Um, it taught me so much. And it inspired me to do the work that I'm continuing to do. Because as soon as I met educators, I fell in love with you all. Um, one, you made me all feel like slackers. Because you're doing <laughs> so much, right? You're doing so much on top of your day job a lot of the Edutopia educators were trying to connect and using social media to say, hey, I need help reaching out, collaborating, blogging, speaking. And, you know, that all comes with time and not everyone was doing it, but there was just so much going on. That, and being as selfless as possible to say, how can I really help the kids that I'm serving and the parents and the communities that I'm serving? It just every time I talk to them, I'm like, I'm not doing enough. And I'm not doing enough to support them as a brand. I always was really hard on myself. How can we be as useful as possible to the people that we're serving? And that's one of the things I will hit home to every single brand I work alongside in education is, are you being as useful as possible to your audience? Yeah, I love that. And I'm sure, so I think we're, we're kind of jumping out of step, which is great. Um, I think Edutopia will probably come up in some of the questions I have for you in just a moment. But uh, again, I think that that's kind of a big kernel of it's certainly where you and I had met and, and the work that I've admired for so long, but like a lot of stuff does trace back to that. And I feel like, you know, as a, as an organization and a, a non-for-profit, you know, they've been able to do great work. And I think it's 30 years that they've been doing that work, um, which is long time. Surreal. <laughs> 
So yeah, and I think maybe just contextually for your audience to give a little brief background of who I am. Sure, I always represent business more so on the business side, the marketing side. I've never been an educator in the classroom, but I think my superpower is knowing and connecting educators and elevating their voices as much as possible. My team are mostly all former educators as well. Um, But mostly when people talk to me, I can talk to the business people a little bit. I like talking numbers, Um, but, you know, trying to translate what they need and then working with my team to do it in an authentic way. So um, I have an MBA at Berkeley, recently got that, like, I don't know, three years ago, go bears. Amazing. Um, (laughs) And I also have a passion for equity and access and have served on lots of nonprofits, um, including just recently at the Mount Tamalpais College, formerly known as the Prison University Project. And we are the only higher education institution based inside accredited university based inside a prison. So we provide AA degrees to our incarcerated people's population in San Quentin, which is near San Francisco, California. That's amazing. And it's also shocking. Just a little bit of context, too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's the only accredited university based based inside a prison. So there's a lot of higher education institutions partnering inside with different prison populations. But that was a journey in itself. going through an accreditation review with the college and redefining what college even is and education is. So we can get to more of that, but I just wanted to frame that always a marketer started love education. That is our passion. We only work with education brands, but I also have a passion for equity and access and do lots of volunteer work. Yeah. Which can be summed up by saying her really good human. (laughs) So, you know, shown by the work that you do and the passion and the time you put into it and, and all of that. So now we're going to kind of come back to the beginning. And so obviously, you know, the way we break up our, our podcast here is that we have levels. So we're a game company. We think of everything as levels. So our level one question, our icebreaker, as you would, would be a question about play. And, and play is really important here at Breakout EDU. And we want to kind of start off by asking you what is your favorite game that you got to play as a kid? And it could be whatever you want, you know, video game, it could be playing tag, it could be whatever. Uh, and then what is something that you might've been playing more recently? So level one, you know, it was interesting because I was thinking about this question and games fuel you throughout your childhood. And sometimes it almost becomes like a nostalgia memory and you don't like it just, you don't really remember it, but it helps form who you are. And you start, as you get older, you start playing different games. So I was even just reaching out to my family. I'm like, what was that game we played? You know, like (laughs) that kind of self-discovery and rediscovering your childhood through games was really interesting. But, you know, I started when I was younger playing like really fun games, like Hungry Hungry Hippos. Remember those where you're just like- Of course, I love that. Right? Or like operations where you had that little skeleton dude and you were like, (laughs) I might be dating myself a little bit with some of this stuff. No, no, no. That's awesome. Like Candyland, Shoots and Ladders, Monopoly. Like my grandma would spend- hours with us teaching us games like i don't know if you know kings in the corner no it's like a card game she was like obsessed with it so i would play kings in the corner with my grandma and then when she was trying to get like our our energy out we would play this game called slapjacks you know slapjacks i do know that one i know 
Okay. <laughs> it's, it's the silliest game. You just throw cards out, and then when you see a jack, you slap it, right? And then you get the pile. <laughs> so it's kind of like war, but like oversimplified, right? Um, so I don't know. Games were always a part, like where they be physical games mostly when I was younger, to be honest. Then like Atari came to the scene and my brother had like a little bit of an Atari, moved into Sega Genesis. Within Sega Genesis, we played two games over and over and over again. One was Toe Jam and Earl. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Do you remember? The earth, earthworm <laughs> so, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they would go through all these levels and there would be like shopping cart ladies that would just like roll you over and they had like a ner- a nerd pack. And I know this game is not PC, but they had this nerd pack that would just come and like roll and like topple you over and like all of these weird things <laughs> that you're like, okay, this is kind of fun. Um and this one is definitely not PC, this game, but I used to play Michael Jackson's game. Oh, <laughs> and Michael Jackson had his own game? game. I think so. And you would yeah. go to each level, but your goal was to save children. Wow. Well, <laughs> so that definitely really... did, that didn't age well. <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard. So all these children would be like locked in closets and things like that. But the oh way my. to get to them <laughs> it would be bad, right? <laughs> but like the that's way also to Michael get Jackson. To them, is that they had all these bad guys and you would have to dance with them to kill them. So you would do like wow. a thriller dance or whatnot and then you'd kill them. I, I know so of tired. this game. I did not know the specifics. Now I'm really going to have to do a little YouTube <laughs> research later and find out because that just sounds very, so very unfortunate. <laughs> but you know, at the time we were just like, we were big fans of Michael Jackson. Of course. I can't imagine like a bigger influence in my music. When I was such a, like, yeah, a kid with Thriller and whatnot. So those are the video games, I think. Um, awesome. We even got really into, with my cousins, Dungeons and Dragons, where we would play it oh. all day long, weekends, and get really serious on that stuff. That's awesome. Did yeah, you, know, did my, you my ever kid, play Dungeons and Dragons? So, so I never really got into D&D. My kids, though, are thoroughly obsessed. I mean, to the point where my son actually, at this moment while we're recording this, is at an all-day all summer D and D camp. So he's wow. doing that all day long. They're obsessed. Uh, I think stranger things helped with kind of making it very popular again and taking a lot of the stigma out of it. Cause it was, you know, considered the nerdy kids that would play D and D, but I definitely fit that bill. I just didn't have the, the five friends to play with or whatever, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I grew up with nerdy cousins and they brought me oh, in and it. I got hooked. So That's I awesome. loved it. So, so that was like my childhood. And, That's and amazing. now I have to say I'm sad I don't play as many board games because no one will play with me. <laughs> I love them. Like I seriously have board game night at my house on the, I have board game holiday parties. Um, love things like sorry, Yahtzee, um, clue. And That's now so I'm fun. like into by myself playing backgammon by myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. so I love all of that stuff, and most people know me in, in terms of my games. It's more of a physical game where I play bocce and shuffleboard and bowling cool. and things like that. So. Oh, bowling. That's awesome. I Used uh, to. Horrible. My joke is I always get most improved player every time I join a league. <laughs> because hey, I'm so bad you're in making the progress. <laughs> That's amazing. But every league, they're like, and the most improved player award goes to. I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, hey, you know, if you got a talent for it, you might as well keep doing it. Um, I have a friend who bowls like he's he's gotten, I don't know, 
maybe 10 300s like he's really an amazing could, you know could be pro type of bowler and you know occasionally be like hey you want to go bowling and for him bowling is like 10 games in a row and it's very serious and for me it's just like nah they have mozzarella sticks like it'll be fine um so <laughs> anyway um the bowling is awesome so anyway next time next isti we should go bowling you could be the most improved we should player go bowling. it'll be fun um, or play bocce or play bocce that's that's true too that, there you go. That works. <laughs> uh, awesome. So I'm going to move us up to level two. And level two is a, you know, let, let's talk about your history. Let's, everyone has an origin story. So what was it that kind of put you on this path to become who you are and do this work that you're doing? You mentioned the long history of working with Edutopia for, for I think you said, eight years. Uh, obviously, you're running your own group that is dedicated to ed tech and ed startups and, and ed companies. What, what made you go into that, into that space? Yeah, I mean, I think who you are is such a journey. That's why I never like terms like expert, because it, it kind of who you are is you're continuously growing and figuring out. And the joke is, we're all just still trying to figure out who we want to be in this world, right? Yeah. Um, but where I'm at now, I don't know if I perceive myself back in the day when I was first starting out my career, if I'd be here. But what helped me get here was definitely my work at Edutopia. But even prior to that, um, I come, I'm a first generation graduation student, um, come from a very poor background, come from a lot of mental illness, addiction, kind of trauma. I don't, no one in my life talked about college. No one talked about how education can kind of change you or help you or transform you. And so when I, when things were not going well in my childhood, I would use reading or school just to be somewhere I could escape and somewhere to just be super curious and learn. And, you know, I was slightly good at it, but mostly it just helped me be calm and be somewhere else and just escape and be this like amazing learner. So throughout my life, I was just kind of moving around and I didn't really have any teachers that connected with me until my fifth grade teacher and my fifth grade teacher I was now at a brand new school came halfway through the year that's so horrible when you can't even start a school year and he just immediately believed in me and he immediately said you know Alana I think someone like you I can get you up to like I at the time I was fifth grade I can get you up into seventh grade math I think you you know just all those things that he would talk about and just believing and then sharing his passion of like rocks and silly stuff like that and birds. I still have those passions to this day because of him. And so having someone, his name was Mr. Follett, Mr. Uh, Follett. Richard Follett. He passed away. So it's, it's hard with, you know, all of you educators listening. I want you to know, even if you never got a thank you, know that you have fundamentally changed so many people, including my story. I never got a chance to go back to him and tell him how he fundamentally changed my life. And I just want you all to know, I know lots of you get thank you letters and and keep binders and emails and stuff like that, but know that that's only representing a small portion of the thanks that you get. So um, because of that one teacher, it really helped me solidify that. What if I didn't have that one teacher? And so many kids don't. And so many kids go down another path. And I don't, I think if I didn't have that teacher at that time, I would have gone down a bad path. No. Because we moved around a lot and I didn't have anyone that believed in me. And I just thought I was kind of playing around at school and didn't 
know there was anything else out there. So that helped me. And when I got the opportunity to work in an organization like Edutopia and be immersed with so many inspiring educators, it just all clicked. It's like, this is my place where I want to be. This is where I want to be. And it makes me feel good to help people that need being helped so much. And I mean, I can go on and on about the stories and the connections of educators that I've met. And I'm sure I'll share some stories throughout the way. But that fundamentally fueled what I wanted to do. And I started my agency because I wanted to work with different types of educators and different stakeholders in education. Because the more you work in education, obviously, it's not just one type of person making a difference. You got to work together to make big change. And I wanted as a marketer to start creating relationships with all of those stakeholders. So that's what kind of fueled me. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned like um, the, all the different stakeholders. It, it's so true that there's so many components and moving parts, but at the same point, like, and this is something that I think you and I uniquely can can speak to is like the space is so small, and the people you meet, you know, people you've met, and and again, like you met me through Edutopia. Um, I was at the at that point a teacher and writing couple of you know <laughs> random <laughs> posts for for edutopia blog or magazine and you know our relationship is we've gone through so many different stages like you've gone on to do your own business i've gone on and, and help run a breakout and um it's just funny to see like the, the space you'll bump into the same people the same teachers that you've met along the way i'm sure come back and in, into variety of, of capacities it's really a small yeah. world is, is the point <laughs> And some people, even at ISTE, were like, how do you know so-and-so? And most of us just pause, smile with, at each other gratefully, and say, oh, we just go way back. Yep. And then if they're lucky, we will talk about how we have all been a part of each other's lives and seen each other ebb and flow throughout the industry in different roles and grow. And I feel so lucky to be a part of that. Yeah. I, I, ditto. Um so our level three question is about challenges. And you, you kind of alluded to some challenges you had, obviously, growing up, and we definitely don't have to dive into that. But in terms of your career, is there something that, that an obstacle that came up, whether it be from the path of Edutopia through to today, some obstacle or challenge that you've had to overcome to get you to where you are now or something that you've kind of learned along the way from there? Yeah, this one's hard one because everyone's got lots of challenges in their lives. I think my first career outside of undergraduate school, I went and got a job in tech and like a software service company. And now that word is, is, is fundamentally a little bit more normalized now that Salesforce is a big thing and all of that. But at the time, 2004, software service wasn't really a thing. and, and when I jumped into the world of technology, and even at this point, it wasn't ed tech, it was philanthropy tech. So still doing good, but more what we call corporate social responsibility. You might hear Mm -hmm. the acronym CSR. Um, So in that world of tech, there was a lot of limiting beliefs on people. And in particular, I came in as an admin assistant, just wanting to dip my toe in the water of technology. And I had a lot of limited beliefs placed on me of like, 
and there was a lot of, unfortunately, like sexual discrimination and misogyny. And you're a girl, you can't do these things. And this is when engineer teams were 100% male. And I was like one of the three people, women in the organization, and the women were in customer service at the time or sales wow. or biz dev. And when you're starting a career, you're just so, you, for me in particular, I never worked in any kind of corporate environment. I didn't know about internships, so I didn't take advantage of them in college. You know, I didn't know how to write an email when I first got in, things like that, that you just were so new at. So you take things as face value and you take things of people telling you what you can and cannot do as, as truth. And so I struggled for a really long time of like, oh, I should just do this because that's what people told me I should do. And having people impose limiting beliefs on you is really hard to get out of, I'd have to say. Being in a more welcoming environment like Edutopia, where it, it is female run, it is probably even now so at least 60, 70% female. I felt more welcome and I learned a lot about myself and just jumping in and having people trust your gut and your passion. Like, yeah. I can't believe what it meant to me when I was in a staff meeting at Edutopia and me and Betty Ray at the time who ran the community and all the editorial and the blogs, we were just hanging out on Twitter. And I remember Cindy saying, just keep hanging out there. I think there's something there because we couldn't even quantify, you know, in business, sometimes you have to justify why you're spending time in certain places with reach and, and engagement. And I'm not undervaluing that. But I'm also, when things are brand new, there's an opportunity to just sit and listen and poke around and see what could be. And we poked around and saw, saw what could be on Twitter and EdChat. And we developed our entire blogging strategy around people saying cool things that really just sparked ideas. And we're like, that's cool. We never heard that. You should blog. Uh, and elevating their voices when they had own, their own limiting beliefs about themselves, too. So I think fundamentally just getting over people telling me what I could and couldn't do based on what I looked like was yeah. really hard. And then as you progress in organizations and leadership, you do have people trying at times, unfortunately, trying to tell you you're not good enough or you can't be this or do that. And I hold that really hard because I, I have a bad instinct from my childhood of just holding it and saying that they're they're right. I can't do this. I can't do that. And whenever you take a risk in life, everybody, their natural reaction is, you're going to fail. I'm so scared for you. You are going to fail. And I'm sure you yep. experienced that too, Adam. It's like when you went to form one of your first companies and get out of the classroom, what are you doing? You're you're leaving stability. Yeah. You're my mother fail. was like, you're, you're, you don't get a pension. Like this is not, you know, a logical teacher move. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I know. Um, I left a billionaire. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Like, You're crazy. You're uh, absolutely crazy, Lana. What's wrong with you? Well, well. So here's here's the interesting part. So you mentioned like the toxic culture at your first job, and then you you kind of juxtapose that with the the culture and the amazing leadership at Edutopia. So is there a like? How did you make the leap from one to the other? Like, was it a conscious decision to be like enough is enough, or was it like? I'm just going to search for something else. Like what, what was the bridge between those two roles? One of the things I haven't learned well, and I'm starting to learn is when to say no and just say, I, I think I'm done. 
Mm-hmm. And it usually takes a big thing for me to be done somewhere. You know, I just put my heart and soul into everything. And I never know when is a good time to leave until it's, it's almost too late. Until like you're, you're literally just like either depressed or your body is having panic attacks or whatever it may be that you're, mm-hmm. I've waited too long <laughs> because I love the brand or what I was doing so much. Um, that for me, I am now very conscious about trying to figure out what fuels me and what are the signals that burn me out and constantly having a work-life balance so I can maintain what I do and have joy. So I think for me, like I actually quit my software job, my first ever job with not another job aligned. And that was another thing. People are like, you're crazy. What are you doing? You don't even have something lined up. You're going to die. Blah, blah. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, turns out that was, was, I felt so happy. And you know what? I went and just decided to go do catering and shuck oysters at an oyster bar in West Marin and just be happy for a little bit and figure out what what would give me joy again? And Edutopia just came up. I actually didn't want to work there because they were the first job I interviewed for. <laughs> and they were like, when, they were like, when can you start? I'm like, I don't really want to work anymore. <laughs> they were just, they were just so gracious and they were so smart. And I had, I think some people have um, assumptions about nonprofits, or at least I did because I was young in my career. And I, I always thought, nonprofits don't have money and they lack focus. And sometimes they they lack people with skill sets that you can learn from. All of these are fundamentally wrong. I know this, but I was young in my career. And when I got to interview with the people, I was just so inspired by them. I'm like, okay, let's work. But can you give me like a month? They're like, okay, how about two weeks? How about one week? (laughs) So anyways, (laughs) eight years later at Edutopia, I can't thank them for believing in me. And, you know, I started as a membership coordinator, ended as a director leading community, leading social media. And I just, I can't thank them enough for the trust they put in me. That's, that's incredible. I mean, and I feel like, you know, it, it's so nice to be on the other side of it. Obviously, I didn't ever work at Edutopia, but I, I you know, interacted with, with multiple people there. You know, you mentioned Amy and Cindy and, and all those folks that that I have nothing but but warm feelings towards as well. It's nice to know that it, it's it's genuine, and I feel like that obviously has set you up for, you know, taking that and moving it forward in, in your own business, which is which is very heartening just to hear that. Um, so yeah, the number one value I want to hold with my team as much as possible is we're humans first, we're people first, and we're not just saying it because it sounds good to put on LinkedIn or whatever. It's mm-hmm. really, are we okay? Are we having joy first and foremost? And are we having that work-life balance that we all lacked? Because I never want to be in a position that one of my team members leave and they don't know who they are identity-wise because they've attached themselves to the brand so much. Mm-hmm. I don't want that anymore. So I, I'm really all about, let's create a safe, place for people. And most of the people that come to our organization have been in traumatic work environments, have been in things that they're still recovering from. And so I want this to be the safe haven of just doing good work. That's awesome. That's, I mean, you know, that's that's such a respectable, (laughs) such such a a thing to aspire to. I love it. Um, So we're going to go to level four, which is all about passion. And clearly, you know, anyone who's been listening to you for the last uh, however many minutes we've been chatting is very aware that you are a passionate person and, and, you know, someone who leads from the heart. So 
I'm really curious, what are you most passionate about right now in education? I know you've worked with many brands and do different things. And so when I say that question, it's like, it could be something that you're trying to share with others or, or kind of shine the light on for others or something that even you personally are looking forward to learning more about yourself. Yeah, I like this question because I think depending on the, the year you ask, it, it, it might change a lot, <laughs> but great. there there's certain things for me that have never changed. It's never been a tech tool. It's never been like, oh, now you can do this cool thing with a VR or the metaverse or and yeah. the, not to discount what technology can do, but I've never really been about the ebb and flow of the technology. I've been about meaningful tech integration and making sure that it, it matters and it connects students to real life. But I'm not that expert there. I work with a lot of tech brands. That doesn't get me as excited as equity and access and social justice have. Um, mm. Just coming from my background, education is riddled with the have and have nots. And it's set up, the system is set up. And it's still such a hard thing to penetrate. When you think about how schools get money and don't get money, it fundamentally is riddled with equity and access issues. And even ed tech plays a role in that, right? Because they have to make money and all of these things. So I look at what types of technology and specifically ed techs and education organizations are helping bridge that gap. Mm. So, I mean, I could go on and on about the things I do there, but I... I always ask those tough questions for people that also want to work with us. It's like, how are you not creating more of that divide? And we, we saw so many amazing things happen within the pandemic as it relates to technology and equity and access. But we also saw some bad things happen, too. So that's why it's such a nuanced answer, right? Like we saw, you know, the rise of learning pods come up and right. private tutoring and all the things that most everyday kids couldn't afford. Yeah. Right. But then we saw them thriving in different ways, too. So I don't want to ignore that. But equity and access, 100, 100 million percent still drives me criminal justice, social justice, the pipeline from K-12 education to incarceration mm -hmm. fundamentally bothers me to no end. Yeah. Um, you can look at any stat and look at the trends and they're sobering and we need to do better as a society. So that's why I've done a lot of work within the justice system. My father personally also spent eight years of his life incarcerated. So it's like a really close thing to me of knowing that when you have incarceration, it affects not just, just that one person and, and it affects society as a whole and so many children. And this is a wrong stat, but at one point it was thrown around. <laughs> I don't know why I'm going to repeat it, but there's a, a majority of children that have parents incarcerated that actually go to prison and follow in their footsteps. And it, at one time it was 70%, but I could never cite that source. Oh, wow. so, but, but it's, it's huge Yeah. because you, you leave kids without parents and you leave them as potential role models that are, are in prison. And those parents are actually going to, if they don't have organizations like the Mount Tam, college or, or things that I've been a part of, sometimes you just learn to be a better criminal in prison, yeah. which is fundamentally the, the opposite. Yeah. So I would say like education access, we're big proponents of edge of color, 
love what Jose is doing and his team oh, there. That's incredible. Our, we have a foundation that's called the LCG Foundation, and we also privately sponsor organizations like that. Oh, that's um, awesome. Educolor that. has a summit come up. Um, we have clients like the University Innovation Alliance that are 100% focused on getting other universities to commit to equity and access and making sure that we don't forget people to graduate them as well. Because so many types of students, if they're lucky, get to start college, but the types of students that don't finish are generally um, students of color, low-income students. Like once it broke my heart to realize one of the more um, popular reasons a student, a low-income student doesn't get their diploma is because they have library fines. Yeah. And it seems so silly. Isn't that, that isn't that insane? Afford them. Yeah. You know? And so they talk, these organizations within the University Innovation Alliance talk about these things and, and together create policies that are more inclusive. And that gives me goosebumps just talking about, right? So those things fuel me. Another thing that fuels me is treating educators as humans, as human beings, first and foremost, and not because we want it to trickle down to student performance and all of this crap. We, we treat educators as human beings because it's the right thing to do. It's the respectful thing to do. And we should be elevating that profession and supporting them as much as possible. So we have built out a community called Nourish Teachers. It's all about spreading joy to them as human beings and, and potentially reinvigorating them if that's what they need um, to just be there and support with non-judgment and kindness and love. And I know that sounds really touchy-feely, but boy, it works because this profession, I don't need to tell you all listening, most people are not kind at times and you get the brunt of it a lot. And people don't realize how many parents come to you and, and all the things that you have to deal with and that you don't get supported or recognized for the decades of service. That bothers me. Adam, yeah. why don't they even get a coaster or something after 10 years? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I think, I mean, it goes back to your earlier point, though. It's I think people are not doing it for a thank you. And I think that the profession, unfortunately, it's a backwards thing where it's like, you know, the, the people are, or educators are not usually compensated in a way that we would consider to be incentivized. And it is extremely stressful. And, and that's why we're having such a retention issue right now on top of getting through the pandemic, you know, for, for those couple of months in the beginning, I feel like it was like the teachers are heroes. And then all of a sudden it became, you know, back to the same old stuff. But I, I don't want to lose what you said, though, because I think that what you, you know, you mentioned a couple of things that I think were just just brilliant. And, and, you know, big shout out to Jose. Um, I love what he's done with Educolor. He's also an incredible uh, New York City based educator, uh, math teacher who's done incredible things and started Educolor and um, just a great organization. So for those listening that haven't heard of Educolor, please definitely check out their organization. Um, but you mentioned something else that, you know, you talked about earlier, um, the, the prison, the, the K-12 to prison pipeline, and you talked about the statistic, whether it's 70% or not, it's obviously a high percentage, higher than it should be for sure. But then you talked about your own experience and just to kind of shed light on the fact where it's like, not only is it, you know, I, I don't want to get sappy and be like, oh, it's a success story, but like talking to you, Alana, and hearing you talk about your origins and your story and how what you do on a daily basis is work to elevate the voice of educators and to be involved in good things and make the world better, whether it be through nourished teachers or whether it be through your organization and, and through the, the philanthropic arm of it. That's remarkable. I mean, and it just, I'm sure everyone picked up on it, but I just wanted to tell you like that just is incredible. 
to, to kind of be the antithesis of a statistic and to, and to make something that is better than and helps more people than you can imagine. So, you know, I know I'm interviewing you, but I just, I had to say that that just, I, I didn't know all of that story and it just strikes me as remarkable. And I just wanted to say that that's awesome. Thank you. Don't make me cry. I, I, I won't. We can, we, can edit out all, we can edit out all the crying. I know. I know. I am too. That's the sad part. Um, so you've been dropping knowledge and wisdom for the entire time we've been chatting, but I do have to bring you up to level five for the best piece of advice that you've gotten in your career. So if you wouldn't mind sharing that with our listeners, what would it be? Um. I kind of want to turn the tables a little bit and talk to your audience on this one if I can. Um, and it does apply to me because I think throughout my career, I've and I still do, I don't know my worth. I still downplay. I'm, I'm humble to a fault. I will overly give, give, give until I'm burnt out and my body rejects life. Um, and I think that it, for all of you educators listening, it, it might really resonate. So knowing your worth and really owning what you do as a professional and having that, I, I say this also to my junior team members that have joined is that you have the unique privilege to be a part of this and have this vantage point where you work with ed tech brands across the US doing XYZ. You might be young in your career, but know your worth, own it. Um, I got to interview on my podcast, Nick Provenzano, and he talked about knowing your worth and also negotiating with ed tech brands if they ask you to do something and saying, we don't get paid in sweatshirts. Thank you very much. Or t-shirts, you know, like your time is just as valuable, if not more. And when you are talking to any brand or anything else, you are giving them something that they do not have internally. And it is so, so important. So I just want you to know that you are so valued and your expertise, even though you might not feel it in society at times, you are so important and so valued. So being able for me to continue, it's a struggle for me too, of owning our career and our experiences and knowing your worth and being able to communicate that and respect your own time and boundaries. I think within Nourish Teachers, we talk a lot about that community. It's a private community on Facebook for US K-12 teachers. And you can find it on Facebook if you just put in the search, but about things about boundaries, because if you don't fuel yourself first, you can't really help others too. So I think that that's, that's a big thing. And when I was younger at Edutopia and so much of like just finding my voice and being comfortable speaking my voice and speaking my truth. And I still struggle with that as well. Like we're all growing as human beings, but I think if you create PLNs and PLCs that are supportive, they can help you along this journey of balance, knowing your worth and finding your voice because all of you help do that for me, Adam. Like even people that, we have seen throughout the conference circuit. I remember speaking to Rafrans one time, Rafrans Davis, and she mm -hmm. probably doesn't remember this, but she says, I've, I've really enjoyed seeing you gain a voice over the years. And it just stuck with me. And cause I never thought I had a voice. I never thought what I had to say mattered. And I know that sounds silly, but that's true. I represented a big ed tech brand. 
I didn't know. I didn't come from education. All I wanted to do was elevate your voices because what you guys were doing was so amazing. Um, and I still feel that way and it hundred percent guides who I am. I'm about connecting and elevating voices as much as possible. But I think in doing that, I mean, and, and another shout out, I love Rafrans. I haven't caught up with her in, in far too long, but, uh, another another great voice in that tech and, and a genuine one and i think that you know that comment is is so true and meaningful but i think that by doing the good work you find your value like you know i love what nick said about you know we don't get paid in sweatshirts but at the same point like everyone starts somewhere and i remember the days where it was like oh my gosh i got a pen from so and so because they wanted me to, you know like i i think it that's that's great advice in hindsight i think it's almost the journey to do it, like to, to get there. And, and, you know, the -hmm. parallel is like, I spoke at conferences for free for six, seven years before I ever got asked to go do something. And so it's like one of those, uh, those moments where it's like, yeah, Oh, it does have value. Oh, that's interesting. I should have known that earlier. I love that. But I think in terms of, of what you've brought to the table, you've been able to be in the middle of it in so many amazing places and, and, you know, been a part of a of a really great org and the work that you did is is incredible and you know i don't know i i could see that as being fuel for obviously yeah. the ability for you to go out and start your own business and, and do that which is incredible yeah and it, i think use your guiding light of what gives you joy but continue to grow from there so you may say wow i want to do this blog post for free because it gives me joy and it gives me all this experience sure on my side, on the corporate side, I'm trying to normalize paying educators for everything and going above and beyond. So no, mm. I want to make that a standard, regardless of if, if it gives you joy and you professionally develop, because I want the industry. And they it has somewhat evolved. I remember when I first started, um, it wasn't a norm to pay educators to blog or anything right. like that. So I, I want people to really figure out what gives you joy, what 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 leaps do you want to take potentially in your career that might scare you just a little bit? Um, I, I think that there's great organizations that help support educators in taking those little leaps. One is EduMatch with Sarah Thomas, where yep. she really, you know, if you have a goal of being an author, like for me, I can't imagine being an author. It's just so fundamentally scary. And I think there's probably people on this call going, I don't have time for that, but I love blogging and I've written thousands of blogs. Well, guess what? That's a book, right? So <laughs> it's, it's just being able to work and connect with people that can help support you. And EduMatch is a good organization. It's a yep. it's 501c3 too, full of educators that become authors too. So just take a little bit of those leaps, but start growing your self-worth along the way too. And, and your confidence. I love it. I think that that's, that's certainly great and sound advice for so many listening. Um, well, I mean, I, I think we've, we've kind of run the gamut over here with uh, origin stories and video games you played with grandma and then some really heartfelt and, and impactful moments. So, you know, I can't thank you enough for sharing a bit of your story with us and also sharing the work that you've done, but also the work that you're doing and have yet to do. Um, it's always, always wonderful to, to chat and connect. So before we sign off, would, would you tell our listeners where they can find you and follow along with your, uh, either your work online or how they can get in touch with you online? Sure. Um, I love connecting with educators and learning from all of you. So, uh, you can do that easily and most easily on Twitter. So I'm at Ilana Leone, E-L-A-N-A. 
L-E-O-N-I. And I reckon uh, Adam will have it in the show notes too, but that's at Twitter. And our group is called Leone, my last name, L-E-O-N-I group. So um, at handle Leone group on Twitter. You can also find any of us on LinkedIn. Um, we are also on Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, all of the things too. But if you really want to collaborate, I still am old school and love connecting and learning from you alongside on Twitter. We're also at leoneconsultinggroup.com. So I think I covered it. I just thank you, Adam, for having me on. This has been a pleasure. No, it's been, it's been so much fun. So thanks again. And everyone, until the next time, game on. Game on.